Welcome, everyone. If you are here for our first ever live stream episode for our Voices of Compassion podcast, you're in the right place. My name is Natalie Tamborello, and I am on the Community Connections team here at CHC. And for this episode, we are really excited to be partnering with the National Center for Learning Disabilities. And also, we are sponsored by our very own Schwab Learning Center. And in this episode, we'll be discussing some of the unintentional negative messages we encounter as we're encouraged to overcome rather than embrace our learning disabilities or differences. So tonight, you're going to hear some personal stories from some alumni of the NCLD Young Adult Leadership Council. Um, about their LD acceptance journey. Before we get started, I'm going to go over some quick logistics um, and give a little intro to CHC to those of you who are new to our community. So um, this is a unique opportunity. This is our first live recorded podcast um, that we've ever done. And that means that you all get to ask questions, those of you who are here live with us today. All right, I'm going to give a little bit of background on CHC for those of you who don't know. Um, we've been serving the peninsula and South Bay and actually all of the Bay Area for the past 70 years. And we have four areas of focus, which are ADHD, learning differences or learning disabilities, anxiety and depression, and autism. Um, our specialty is really the intersection of mental health and learning. So a lot of organizations only focus on one or another. Uh, we really believe in focusing on both and on that intersection. So. If you have any questions about CHC, I'm happy to answer them at the end, um, but I'm going to give a little bit of just a short background on our five areas of work. Um, so first of all, we have a clinical services department, which is all of our evaluations for mental health challenges, therapy, consultations. We have an intensive outpatient program, speech and language, occupational therapy, et cetera. We have a lot, um, and it's from birth to 25. Uh, these services are primarily in California, um, but our Community Connections and our Schwab Learning Center, both are starred here, are available to people who are not in California. So if you are in New York or in another state or Washington, D.C., you can access some of the services provided by the Community Connections team and the Schwab Learning Center. Community Connections is what we do. So this is what the podcast um, team is a part of the Community Connections team. We also have an online resource library. We have parent support groups. We have a collaboratives. Um, these, a lot of these opportunities are virtual. Obviously, podcasts are, um, and so are the parent support groups. So if you're interested in those, you can check them out on our website. And then there's the Schwab Learning Center, which is our sponsor tonight. Um, the SLC is specifically for high school, college students, and adults with language-based learning disabilities and ADHD. We offer evaluations and then also learning specialist support, especially from transitions from college to work or high school to college. And again, those are also, so services are available to people outside of California. Um, and then lastly, we have two schools. We have the Sandhill School and the SRP Clark Schools. Um, the Sandhill School is for students with language-based learning disabilities, grades two through eight. And then we have SRP Clark Schools, which is a non-public school uh, system with students with emotional and behavioral challenges. And that is K through 10. That's a lot. I know that's not even scratching the surface, but I want to get started um, on the content for tonight, which is our wonderful guest from NCLD. So uh, I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves based on your name, your pronouns, where you live, 
what you're doing for work now or school, hobbies, passions, interests, whatever you want to share. And then just a short version of your identification story around LDs or mental health and just so people know that they have a little roadmap to follow about you. So I'm going to let Misha go first. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Misha Nicholas. I currently live in Maryland. I go by the pronouns she, her. And pretty much right now, I work for an NGO whose mission is to uplift and support immigrants and refugees in the U.S., but also to around the world. But on the side, I do also to do side initiatives. Recently, I was in a competition globally and I won and now I'm representing North America. And Great. actually, my clause was to uplift the global neurodivergent community. So I'm really excited for that. And just to give you a little info about what I'm going to be speaking about tonight, it's really a story from the time I was in elementary school all the way to my college years of being an undiagnosed student with ADHD and ASD and not really understanding the concept of what neurodivergence was. So I developed anxiety and depression as a result of that. Uh, I won't go further into the logistics, but that's just a little taste of uh, what I'm going to be talking about and how I overcame it. Awesome. Thanks, Misha. Hi, everyone. My name is Rochelle Johnson. I use she, her pronouns. I am dyslexic with ADHD and anxiety. Um, I currently live in Florida. I'm a PhD student at Florida State University where I research um, the emotions children experience while learning to read, especially those with learning disabilities. And a bit of my background with learning disabilities, I was fortunate to get diagnosed early on um, in second grade, but showed signs of um, difficulty with learning very early and struggled throughout school. Um, eventually I, um, did get, I wasn't on, on an IEP for dyslexia all throughout K-12 and, um, for ADHD and struggled for most of that time. By nine, I eventually developed anxiety as well due to academic stress in the classroom and feeling pressure to achieve in a setting where I didn't feel always supported or I had the capabilities to learn. Um, I now, after growing up in community with learning disabled people, I eventually went into advocacy starting in high school and have stayed doing that, um, wanting to help my community. And today I'm a researcher of learning disabilities and continue in advocacy so that we can help all students with learning disabilities achieve. Awesome. Thanks, Rochelle. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Stevie Mays. I use they, them pronouns. I grew up in the wonderful state of Michigan. Uh, I then, for my career, have moved to Washington, D.C., um, where I've worked in a variety of spaces within the disability community, if you will. I worked in the space of disability advocacy for about three years and currently I'm working more in spaces as a support role for disabled folks. Um, currently working for Easter Seals as a respite worker, which is a fancy term for personal assistance for families who are in the Navy and have a disabled child. Additionally, I also very proudly work with a alternative, augmentative alternative communication group called Reach Every Voice, where I teach groups of autistic folks, uh, kind of like a social hour type thing where they have time to be with peers to practice typing. 
I'm also very excited because in the fall, I'll be starting a master's in rehabilitation technology, uh, which feels very aligned with my goals. Um, in terms of my LD journey, I um, was diagnosed uh, in second grade with a few different learning disabilities, um, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia. Um, and I was also diagnosed with ADHD, but that diagnosis was uh, not treated at all when I was growing up, which I think has contributed to some of my um, struggles through adulthood, if you will. And um, for me, I had some pretty intense experiences in middle school about learning about what my disabilities were, and it, it really negatively impacted me and then greatly influenced my mental health from thereafter. Yeah, it's really interesting because all of you have chosen careers, obviously, based on your own personal experiences. Um, and I know we'll get into that in a little bit. But I also think it's only fair that I introduce myself a little bit, too, because I'm asking all of you to be vulnerable. Um, as I said, my name is Natalie Tamburello. I work at CHC, and I'm also dyslexic. I was diagnosed in beginning of second grade, I believe. Um, and due to the fact that I was basically not welcomed back to the school that I was currently in, um, I was told that I was uneducable uh, and wasn't diagnosed with anxiety until my late 20s. So I really identify with Stevie's experience of not getting identified with the mental health uh, challenge or other health impairment until later in life. And also Misha, I think that's very common um, amongst, you know, high functioning people with learning disabilities, um, that the mental health stuff happens later or is identified later. Um, but anyway, we're going to get started on our questions and here's the first one. And I'm going to ask this of Misha first, um, what has been the impact of the pressure to overcome your disability? So I gave you a little synopsis of just kind of my life as an undiagnosed individual. So I got diagnosed at 25, right? So up until this moment, I didn't even know what neurodivergence was. I just thought, what is pressure to be normal, right? Whether or not that was being programmed just to study harder for tests or turn in assignments on time. It slowly developed into an anxiety actually where, because I didn't know that, you know, I had ADHD or ASD, um, it was forced contact with people and really programming me to mask who I really was. Mm. And going into, I believe, elementary school is when I really started to feel anxiety, you know, the correlations between anxiety and perfectionism, right? Um, in particular, for my ADHD, for example, if something wasn't submitted on time or you know, I just had a really hard time concentrating in class. I had a teacher pull me aside and ask, okay, I see you're trying really, really hard, but I just don't understand why you're not doing well in math or reading or writing. And I said, I, I, I have no idea, uh, you know, and whether or not that was intentional or not, not throwing anyone under the bus, of course, it slowly started that anxiety, slowly started that depressive, I guess you can, sorry, I guess you can say episode of me just trying to understand who I was. Um, and this actually elongated pressures, not only from neurotypical individuals like that experience I shared with you with my teacher, 
but also from undiagnosed neurodivergent individuals, such as my parents, um, which I'll give you an example. My father, um, he said to me, you know, for a job application, this is a little recent, like a year ago, you shouldn't put that you have a disability mm-hmm. um, check mark on it just because of the stigma that it might get. Or my mom jokes around, right, that, you know, oh, I'm, I have ADHD, I'm undiagnosed. But when I ask her, you know, why don't you get tested? She's like, oh, you know, like, you know, that's just life. And I think just to sum it all up, these experiences that I'm sharing with you are just the subliminal pressures. I feel like that undiagnosed and diagnosed individuals experience every day. Uh, from, again, neurotypical individuals or neurodivergent individuals who are just trying to navigate, I guess, in a neurotypical space of what is, quote unquote, normal and what is, what isn't normal, um, which can, as a result, develop into high developing stressors like anxiety or depression that can be left untreated uh, until your later years, which is my situation. So it's just a little sum of, yeah, some of my experiences that I endured. Michelle, Stevie, anything to add? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting, Nisha, especially hearing from you as someone who is late diagnosed and being someone who was early diagnosed, knowing that there was still this pressure to overcome, but it was different. There wasn't as much emphasis on, yes, I wanted to be normal, but that always was kind of an unachievable, but appear as um, typical as possible. And being having that label, which it's definitely important. And like, I'm so thankful to be labeled, like got the diagnosis, but the intention always, especially being dyslexic was always on, um, getting me to be, not be dyslexic anymore, getting me to read better. And like, as someone who studies reading development, obviously, like, I think that reading, getting dyslexic children to read is so important, but when all the emphasis is not on getting dyslexic children to read, but getting dyslexic children to not be dyslexic it becomes an impossible standard and there at least for me it wasn't always the normal thing but it was we we, this disability we acknowledge it but we're going to overcome it it's it's a challenge you have to face and we're going to overcome and then getting to the point of being like no that's not the goal I think the goal for at least dyslexic children specifically is getting them reading as best as possible but I think reading is just one aspect of a quality life that now yeah. I tried to pursue uh, while also acknowledging I'll always be dyslexic. I found for myself that um, my sense of perfectionism has kind of felt like a pendulum a bit where there have been periods of my life um, where I practically, I, in high school especially, I disengaged completely as a student. Um, A main contributor of that was very intense depression that was not being caught or recognized um, by my community, I guess. Um, And it was interesting, too, because the educators and my team were aware that I was underperforming based off what my test scores, quote unquote, would have suggested I could have been performing at. Um, But no one ever... My mom eventually caught on and said, you yeah, know, I think you need a therapist. But um, my teachers and school counselors just did not address at all these underlying mental health issues that I was experiencing. Um, it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I started self-advocating for myself 
with educators, um, especially after my IEP got taken away, because then they had no idea I had disabilities until I told them. Um, So once I started openly identifying with teachers, I found that they were so receptive and excited to help me learn in a sense, or at least see me be engaged at all, that it became a um, positive loop, positive feed loop. But then I do want to share that by the time I reached college, um, I felt like I just really had a need to achieve and continue to succeed. But then it reached a point of toxicity where I was so focused on getting like the highest GPA possible to try to become a researcher and all that sort of stuff that um, I burnt myself out completely by the time I reached my last year of college, which then made my mental health way worse again. So I've... Yeah. Come to embrace a sense of uh, not taking it too, too seriously and frankly, like not becoming too competitive because it's I think it's toxic for anyone. But I think especially for folks with learning disabilities and mental health conditions, it becomes debilitating. Yeah, there's nuggets I'm taking away from from each of you. Like with, with Misha, I think the fact that you experience something so similar to those of us who do have the label tells you how pervasive the feeling of being othered is, regardless of whether you have a label or not. Um, and then with Rochelle, I, I feel like this pressure to overcome, I think, you know, when I talk to most students or adults who are, you know, in their 20s or 30s, a lot of them said, oh, I had dyslexia or I had ADHD. And it's very contextual to school because they were taught that this is something you overcome within your educational experience. And then when you enter into adulthood, it's somehow magically cured. And that's a really negative message, assuming that that you are something to be cured um, and, and overcome in some way. And then Misha, listening to you talk about um, how hard it is to navigate without an IEP and talking to a teacher and advocating for yourself. Like in some ways that tells me that we don't need to necessarily medicalize learning disabilities. Like you can advocate for yourself and it's an identity. And sometimes taking that power back as a form of identity is really important Um, and learning to embrace it rather than, um, yeah, having it be something medical to solve. Or to cure. That's just my my takeaway from this discussion so far. Anything else to add before we move on to the next one? No, no, no way. Um, our next question is kind of the opposite of this. So, throughout your LD journey, what does it look like to embrace your disability? What does that felt like in comparison to the overcoming? Um, and how how has that impacted your life? We can start here. Let's start with Rochelle. So I think the the best thing that happened to me and set me up for success as a learning disabled person was the fact that I was lucky enough to grow up in community with other learning disabled people. A majority of my friends had learning disabilities, ADHD, and then a few with autism. And I think that that being surrounded by those people who had similar struggles, not all were diagnosed, but a good amount were and that allowed me to always be very open about my learning disabilities and explore what that identity meant to me um i think was so monumental but i didn't always grow up embracing necessarily disability i embraced my learning disabilities specifically 
as a child and then in high school going into advocacy and realizing that my story was a part of the larger disability movement and disability community and really learning that history um, and seeing that I was a part of something larger, a part of disability um, really has changed my life of how I see myself, the way I carry myself, um, the way I advocate for others. And I just want to touch on something that you talked about when wrapping up our last question of like I graduating high school would have used the word in, like overcome to describe myself. I would have been like, I would have said I was still sexist, but I was like, oh, I overcame that. Like I got to functional reading level, but I am still a very low reader. And I'm like reading currently at like a middle school level as a PhD student, which is functional, but not, not really That's when winning. you're in a doctoral <laughs> program and you have to that's winning. Like I can read directions. I could, I could read a recipe, but you want me to read like 30 page, like scientific manuscripts and something breaks down. So having to come to that fact of, I didn't overcome my dyslexia. I'm a successful person with dyslexia, but I struggle every single day and embracing that, but also talking, like seeing it head on and being like, I struggle. I can both struggle with my disability every single day, but also say this is core to who I am and how I orient to the world and part of history and community. I think that's really interesting. Before uh, Misha and uh, Stevie jump in, I think that that's something that's really lacking in our community is a shared history. Um and I think a lot of other marginalized groups have a shared history that's passed on through generations. And that, you know, with the ADA only being, uh, you know, enacted in 1990, that we have a very short history. And then it's also not documented. It's, it's a history of shame. So we're like very early on um, in our historical building of, you know, a community instead of just a diagnosis. Um, so that was just that resonated with me, Michelle. I will say I would recommend anyone to read books on disability history. Like that has been the thing for me. Yeah. Expansive disability history. We've existed. For a long time. I wanna jump yeah. I wanna jump off what Natalie just touched on because one thing that um really resonates for folks with LDs or similarly invisible disabilities is that it's not obvious to other people. And I think, too, there can be this kind of, um, I don't even know, sort of like dancing around like the embracing disability aspect. Mm -hmm. And I get that um, it's complicated for everyone and it takes time to get there. Um, for me, I was able to start embracing my disabilities um, when I was in high school. I, at the time, was maybe like a D student across most of my courses. I was really frustrated. Um, specifically, though, in science, that was the only area that I was able to excel in. And I was getting, I got two A's freshman and sophomore year. And I petitioned to my counselors. I was like, hey, look, like, I really want to be put in advanced science classes. These really interest and engage me and uh, what, what have you. But because of my standardized test scores in the area of science, um, I did not qualify and they just wouldn't even um, allow it, even after teachers wrote letters. And 
I remember I was so frustrated and it just kind of something clicked in my head. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I am interested. I am smart and I want to be able to do this. And it's just because of the basis of my disabilities. So from that moment forward, um, I started giving speeches on my dis. I should go backwards a little bit. I first found um, LD communities online. Um, and I also like found like disability advocates and that blew my mind. I yeah. had no idea that there were, there was community and I had no idea that there were people fighting for the rights of disabled people. I thought it was so cool. I was like disabled superheroes. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> and, um, that's when I started self-advocating with my teachers. And again, it just became a much more manageable experience to be a student from that point forward. Yeah. Visibility is key. Like seeing other people like you helps you understand who you are in relation to that. And when you're alone in the world, it's impossible to to navigate and, and identify who you are within, you know, the world that feels so rigid and normal and standardized. Um, so this is really great. Misha, anything to add? Oh, most definitely. I mean, after those <laughs> amazing speeches, I, ha I have to chime in. Um, going off of what both of them have, you know, said about really advocating for yourself and how important it is. Unfortunately, for me, I only started advocating for myself when I joined the Young Adult Leadership Council a year and a half ago. Um, most of my life, even people who have, have been diagnosed um, have just masked their, unfortunately, learning disability or their learning difference. And that was just kind of what I was adapted to. But interestingly mm -hmm. enough, now that I'm advocating, you know, for people with learning disabilities or attention issues, a lot of my peers, my friends, um, I've even had a director asked me, oh, what is neurodivergence? I'm very intrigued to know this. So it's so important, especially for our community to really advocate for ourselves because it could be like my situation, right? When I was later diagnosed, it doesn't matter how old you are. It's just really joining the fight um, to just get equal rights. It's so important. And, you know, the more I fought for myself last year, the more I'm like, you know, I have a self-confidence and I can really, you know, educate other people. Unfortunately, I've heard things like, oh, you don't look autistic or, you know, oh, ADHD, like you don't do these mannerisms. When you just have that comfortability to politely address, right, stereotypes or notions and quickly in a snap just change someone's point of view completely. And I think, like you're saying, Natalie, we're in a bit of a new wave, I feel, when it just comes to this movement. And it's really, it's really exciting to be a part of, I'm not going to lie. Like even, you know, here and there, I do hear bits of like people self-advocating for themselves now who I know who like would have suppressed their learning disabilities. So yeah, I think the journey has been a little bit unheartening masking myself for most of my life but um now i'm ready i'm ready with stevie and you know rochelle to not revolutionize of course not join a revolution but to make a change i, I don't want to put words in your mouth 
We're like, yeah, we could do that. Like, I think no, we no. are doing that, Misha. I don't know what you've been calling. <laughs> we've been doing. I, mean, I don't want to, you know, assume anything violent. You know, that, that's what I was trying to get at. Like, peaceful protest, peaceful protest. Yes, yes, yes. But Misha, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like to me, and I'm thinking like in terms of a parent or an educator, when you were young, I bet you, I'm betting there were educators in your life who were like, you know what, I think something's going on with Misha, but decided not to do anything. And I hear this a lot um, from educators saying, you know, I don't want to complicate their life even more. Like it's our, like, I don't, I don't want to add another label or another, um, I don't want to marginalize this kid more than they already are. Um, so I'm just curious what you would say to that, because it seems like you've got a lot of power from that label and power from the vocabulary of being identified with ASD and ADHD. I always advocate for actually teachers to be involved because if I could have been diagnosed like way earlier in life, at least with ADHD, I'm undiagnosed with ASD, but something, it could have changed my whole life around. I mean, I really struggled in school and I just thought internally it was a me thing when really, no, like, girl, you have, you have like, a, you know, attention issues or learning difference. So it, it, it would, would have changed things completely. And I advocate for teachers to do something, honestly. I second this and I don't even know Misha that well, but definitely ADHD sprinkled in there. So it, yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to imagine that that was ignored for so long, but understandable. It's not a new story. So, um, but just still hard to hear. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question. So this is where we're talking about the intersection of, you know, mental health and learning disabilities. And some of you have already kind of talked about this a little bit in your introductions, but if you can go into more depth about what your experience like was with mental health challenges in relation to your learning disability um, and what has it been like to navigate both. And we'll start off with Stevie here. So for me, um, the beginning of um, my depression and anxiety are intrinsically related to my learning disabilities. Um, I'm not an expert on this topic, but I've heard biomedical models. So sometimes um, or the the nature nurture that's what I'm looking for the nature nurture mm -hmm. dynamic where um, anything could have triggered depression or anxiety within me. However, in my experience, specifically my first depression episode, I can recall the day, and it began when a Catholic uh, high school denied me access to the school exclusively on the basis of my learning disabilities, and it was explicit, um, and. That was also the first time I had heard um, my diagnoses listed out. Um, I knew I had some sort of disabilities that was apparent because I was pulled out or I did tutoring. And um, I actually figured out I was dyslexic two years prior by watching the George Lopez show. And they had a special episode on dyslexia. And I was like, well, I definitely have that. I do that much. <laughs> <laughs> But I just remember like sitting in this meeting and they said these other diagnoses, you know, they said dyspraxia, they said uh, dysgraphia. And I remember like the room just practically started spinning 
And I remember like in my mind being like trying to log those words in so I could attempt to Google them later, which newsflash dyslexics, it's not <laughs> cool to try to spell out those words on you. Like I could not figure it out. Um, but that led to my first depressed episode that went unnoticed for about four years of my life. Like most of my high school experience, I was so deeply depressed and Luckily now, um, probably partially due to uh, medication, but outside of anything academic triggering my depression, um, I, I, do, I don't get as depressed. Like I can still become depressed, but nothing triggers a deeper depression for me than something academic and learning disability related. Yeah. Um, so it and then, you know, with then the perfectionism that creeped in my last year of high school and then in college transferring to a bigger 10 university and um, really wanting to excel and improve my worth is what it felt like at the time. Um, it That made my anxiety horrible over grades. I, throughout my whole life, I didn't know until college or post-college it wasn't normal to have a panic attack before every assignment before doing every homework assignment um and like it and it's just wild how those things can be um normalized within a family because you know i remember i talked about it with my mom one day she's like oh well i puked before every exam and it's just kind of like whoa that's also not normal um so those things that were missed because it was so normal within my family um, and just, I guess, maybe within the academic culture that a university can be, um, it becomes pretty toxic pretty fast if not um, checked. And especially not checked in on. I feel like, you yeah. know, our doctors and counselors and teachers don't even... It may not be obvious to them or they may not see it as an outsider view, but it, I feel like that should be a part of normal part of check-in and wellness and all that. Yeah. I, one thing you said around trying to prove your worth, like really sat with me. And I think that's like the whole topic of this podcast today is that overcoming assumes that your worth comes from decreasing one part of you and increasing the parts that are more valued by society. And I think what we're all trying to say here today is that your worth is in your disability. Your worth is in your difference, not in trying to suppress it. Um, and I think even though we might not be explicitly taught that by our educators, some of us are, or our parents, it's very implied through a lot of the language we use and a lot of remediation we go through. And I think like any efforts to try to combat that inherent um, implied negative nature around your learning disability or ADHD or autism, whatever that may be, is so important. Um, and just like really thinking about the words you use, really thinking about what you're valuing in your students. Um, anyway, thanks, Stevie. Michelle, Misha. I definitely have something to add. It's just, sorry, that speech was so powerful, man. <laughs> Thank you. I take myself you're, back. You're sweet. <laughs> it was, it was really powerful. And just to build off from what Stevie said, definitely if anxiety is left untreated, it can really cripple not only your self-esteem, but how others, you know, can perceive you. And um, in particular, I mean, this is in college, you know, when there was the exam, 
you know, everyone would be so anxious. They would have like panic attacks. And then, you know, while I'm in the process of that, you know, my neurodivergent side is like, okay, um, so someone's having a panic attack. I'm having a panic attack, but I'm not sure if that's because it's like a group thing or it's because, you know, I'm late for an assignment. So I just think even being in that state of confusion, you know, amongst your neurotypical peers and your neurodivergent peers was really, really not a turbulent time, but interesting to identify. I think that's when I started to realize, okay, like there's definitely something up with me when it comes to me studying in the library for excessive hours and getting burnt out, right? But then getting like a C minus on an essay. And once again, what Natalie stated is, you know, it's so important to embrace your learning disability. And for those who are diagnosed, for example, like don't view it as a weakness or something that, you know, you have to suppress. I mean, we just live in a reality where, you know, we have to advocate for ourselves. We have to, you know, address our learning disabilities and mental health issues as well. Because otherwise, in some cases, some people might not know, right, on the outside lens, especially if you have an invisible disability of why you're having panic attacks in school yeah. or, you know, why you're mm -hmm. hyperventilating when you just can't um, perform your speech right in speech class, right? Um, so yeah, navigating both of those identities, I think, especially during my college years was really interesting, I can say for the most part. I feel like for me, yeah, anxiety has always been a part of my learning disability experience. I started having weekly panic attacks in the classroom at age seven, which like, and then I was diagnosed with anxiety at age nine which like children have anxiety as children like that but the fact that someone like often it's missed like someone looked at me like my teacher was like uh get that one in an evaluation like it was really bad and I and what was written actually on the evaluation was a fear of being left behind and specifically I had this fear of being left behind intellectually I was so like if I was sitting, let's say, in like math class and we went over one slide and then the teacher flipped to the next slide and I didn't understand the one before, I had this feeling because of my experience with my displays of if I didn't learn that last slide, the entire class was going to learn all of the math and I was going to be left behind. And because I didn't have that foundation from the slide before, I couldn't do it. And I remember, bless her, bless her heart, my like fifth and sixth grade special education teacher Miss Price was amazing and I remember looking in her eyes in like um late elementary school and her being like like what's gonna happen if like you fail this spelling test and I would sit there and like list it out I'd be like I'm gonna fail a failing <laughs> fish then I'll fail out of sixth grade I have I'll never reasons. achieve and then I'm gonna <laughs> end up like homeless and on the streets and I'm gonna die and I also knew the statistics that learning disabled people were more likely to end up um, incarcerated, more likely to be homeless, more likely to have like adverse life experiences. So I was like, statistically, this is what would happen. It's just stare at me. And I would be like 11. And I was like, the world is ending. And you need to understand that this is true. And no one could convince me otherwise. My anxiety, I had anxiety by uh, my primary diagnos um, diagnosis on my IEP 
in high school was anxiety um, because that was the thing that was so disabling for me. All three were going on, but it just was such a part of that experience of feeling like I needed to prove myself. And if if I ever slipped up, I would be abandoned completely and I would be written off as um, incapable. And that has followed me for a long time. Actually, at this point in my life, my anxiety is actually the best place it's ever been, uh, which is wild for me to be like, I still have clinical levels of anxiety. I always will. But for the past year, for it to be manageable has been mind-blowing and amazing for me. But like this semester, I realized the other day was the first time I'd ever, I just finished my um, second year of my PhD and realizing this was the first semester I ever went through an entire semester that I can remember since second grade where I didn't cry in a lecture. So why do you think that is? What's changed? Like, I think part of it, so I feel like I bounce between two feelings in a PhD. So for context, when I was diagnosed at seven with dyslexia, and bismal reading scores. Um, the school like told my parents directly, because my parents um, are very academically driven, always expected me to go to college. And they told my parents that I was never going to go to college and that I might graduate high school with a reduced um, diploma. And that was just like the expectation. Obviously, my mother did not respond well to that. Oh, <laughs> and that did not happen. Obviously. As she should, yeah. Yeah, but I feel like I bounce between and more so bouncing between this next one. First one of like, I need to prove myself and I can never slip up because if I slip up, like everyone's going to know I don't belong here. I wasn't supposed to even go to college. Like, what am I doing here? But also realizing now I have achieved more than anyone ever expected, more than I ever expected of myself. And I have pretty high goals for myself. So realizing like, I don't really need to prove myself. I'm in this program. I'm doing this yeah. thing. Also, like being very upfront about like just like communicating my needs. And I was in therapy for a long time. And before I went to grad school, I was in therapy specifically talking about my learning abilities for a long time. Um, a year and a half before going to grad school, talking about like I needed to work through this academic pressure I was putting on myself. Um yeah, it's been so interesting. And like, yeah, I did cry after class sometimes, but never in the lecture, which is such an improvement. But yeah, it's the win. Definitely now shifted towards the like, I don't have to prove myself um, because I'm doing the thing every day and it's still difficult. Now, I was wondering if that was what you were going to say. And I think all kind of said this at some point is just this there's this inherent need to prove yourself but i do think that there's a point that we all reach hopefully eventually is that get to the point where you realize wow i'm doing the thing that i wanted to do or maybe it's not the thing i wanted to do but i found my place and i found my thing and i don't need that anymore like i don't need that validation from other people anymore but even realizing that even if I wasn't in this PhD program, like, it's okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, we don't, we don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to prove that we are worthy to take up space as learning disabled people. Like Misha was saying yeah. with the last question, it's revolutionary just for us to be loud about being disabled. Just live in life, you know, step at a time. 
CHC's Voices of Compassion podcast is made possible by the generosity of people like you. To learn more about supporting CHC, go to chconline.org donate. Also, make sure to follow us on social media for more inspiring and educational content from CHC. So our next question is kind of our pie in the sky wish and a prayer, which I guess leads to, you know, the revolution you're all trying to start is what do you wish your LD mental health journey had been like? If you could draw it, if you could design it for yourself, what experiences that went wrong could have gone a different way? Like if you can get specific here, I think that would be great Um, for what experiences do you wish had gone a different way and, and what would they look like? I'll start this last. <clears throat> I definitely think if my parents were more compliant um, with teachers about actually putting me in an IEP and not kind of fighting it, it definitely would have made the process a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, especially within the Black community, there is a huge stigma about, you know, learning disabilities and differences and equating it to not being intelligent. And unfortunately, that's kind of the thought process that happened with my parents. So definitely. And if teachers, I'm not sure how you could advocate like in that space, like if your parents, like if sorry, uh, a student's parents, right, are saying we don't want our child to be in an IEP, but they need to be in one. I'm not sure how that would work, but definitely some mediator i don't know like a counselor or or something to navigate a situation um would have been great then secondly even being in specific classrooms i just remember being so young and like i was taken outside of class and i was taken to speech therapy or i was taken to uh let's pull out yeah yeah like math tutoring but i didn't know why i was there teachers please tell students why they're in specific classes (laughs) It's the elephant in the room, right? Like, you'd be surprised how many people. Please don't <laughs> yeah. be vague. Like, you you'd be surprised. We all know we're in the lowest reading, right? Group. Like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, right. And then I think the third one would just be, um, at least when I was in school in my environment, neurodivergence was like, it's honestly was like, what is that? I mean, it wasn't talked about, and unfortunately, people had to feel or felt the need to really mask it. Um, schools, please, like, you know, let's bring awareness to neurodivergent rights as well. I mean, you think it's so obvious, but it's not even health classes. I mean, being undiagnosed, I didn't even know what that was because I thought, oh, maybe, you know, something in mental health and health class would talk about, you know, important topics that were happening in my life, but I didn't hear anything about neurodivergence. I just heard about like, you know, puberty and what to do at a party and just like really insignificant things. (laughs) Yeah. So I think definitely, yeah, improving the health curriculum in neurodivergence. What about the others? What do you guys think? Well, I have a a question for you first, Misha. I'm wondering, were any of your teachers or educators black and would that have made a difference? No, honestly, all of them were white. I definitely think to a certain extent it would have when it came to that instance of um, a teacher pulling me aside and being like, okay, there's obviously something up. We're going to set up a meeting, you know? I think that definitely could have been a game changer for sure. Yeah. For sure. So more inclusivity. We, again, like more Black neurodivergent 
health counselors or, you know, teachers, practitioners. It's just so um, intersectional, but it, it really makes a difference. It really does. Yeah. Rochelle, Stevie? Um, I wish very similar points to what Misha was speaking on, which is that I think my experience would have been revolutionarily different had there not been so much shame and stigma around disability and the sense that it must be um, kept quiet. So like, I feel like um, when I think about the fact that my parents hid my diagnosis from me for about five years until it was revealed, surprise revealed, um, that was unnecessary and like an LD birthday party. Peekaboo, like, wow, that for your denied admission. I should have a cake and just like cake myself every year. That probably would have been better. Man. Yeah. It would have been way better. Um, but I even like think too about, and I mean, I'm not necessarily like saying this is the way to go, but like the way that disabilities are handled within schools, it's very critical. We keep it a secret and we don't disfulge that a student's disabled or whatever. And I get that if a person, um, you know, to each their own. And especially as a kid, you don't want to be othered. But at the same time, what if we, what if we could have picture a school system where we talk about disabilities up front and we say, hey, like in this classroom, there might be someone with such, such disabilities. So I'm going to do this, this or that within the classroom space to make it accessible for everyone. And it actually benefits everyone for this reason. And to also even celebrate like significant days within disability history, you know, um, we have the beginning of the 504 protests that yeah. actually, I think today it's like either today or tomorrow. That was the last day of the 504 protests, which quickly, if you don't know, um, a bunch of disabled folks led protests across the country. But then there was one in San Francisco that lasted 30 days in occupation of a federal building that led to the passage of the law 504. Um, so that's like the coolest like coolest facts ever why aren't we talking about that more and i think it would um allow for more um self-acceptance around the topic yeah the shame of the label is just crazy to me um and i think the more we talk about it the better but rochelle go ahead i don't want to step on your toes go for it yeah um so i just want to talk about like First, like with you two talking about like wishing that it was talked about what your diagnoses were, like as someone who did have that and thinks that that was just pivotal in my experience of that I did grow up being told like this is what your disability is. And like I could at nine tell you all about dyslexia and like define it. But there was always still this pressure. Yeah. To like it's OK. You have dyslexia. You have this thing. But like we're going to we're going to fix that. Don't worry. Like you're not going to be. Um, always struggling. And I wish that there had just been, there was always like acceptance of my learning disabilities in a way that they were matter of fact, but not like this radical acceptance of disability. If that makes sense, that differentiation, it was like, yep, you're dyslexic and we're going to fix that. But like, that's not exactly the same thing as radically accepting like neurodiversity and disability and the idea that it is okay not only to be different but have a disability and have limited abilities in certain areas yeah and i think that that would have been 
so big for me was just like having also like disabled mentors in my life. Um, and I think that's something I still struggle with now. I'm always, if you're a dyslexic, dyslexia research out there, like reach out to me because I'm looking for so many, like still looking for dyslexia, like mentors. Um, just cause like growing up, the only people I had were like, um, actors or like they'd be like very Einstein. distant Einstein was not yeah. dyslexic he like was reading at like four like like people would just give about like or like ceos and if people i like, could not relate to i was like oh, well CEO. i don't i don't want to yeah. like a near peer like, yeah yeah like this rich person who's a big ceo like okay like i wanted to know like the biggest like my seventh grade math teacher like was dyslexic and he owned it he like first day was like i'm dyslexic and he it was the first person I ever saw laugh at his dyslexia, like in such an affirming way. He's like, yeah, I can't spell. And I was like, me neither, dude. <laughs> but I think having those type of mentors and now being an adult and being like people telling me I'm the mentor, which is fine. I love mentoring people, but I'm like, I'd also like a mentor. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of also why I'm so out. People ask me like, oh, why are you out as like a re like being dyslexic? Like people can discriminate against you because you're like out and I could hide it well enough. And I'm like, I wish I saw people as a child being out. So I think having that radical disability acceptance, watching people just embrace being different and having difficulties. Yeah. I think we forget sometimes that our society is really built around reading, which is something that our people did not do for a very, very long period of time, um, and also built around paying attention and also yeah. acting, you know, cordial, act, you know, speaking when you're spoken to very specific things that are, are like they're created. They're not, they were a choice that were made. And that doesn't mean that because you don't fit within that, that you know, very narrow spectrum of valued traits that the other traits aren't also valuable. I mean, I, I always like play around with the idea of what if we like all just like most of tests were like music based or visual arts based and then all the readers would just be screwed. Um, you know, that's just and then they would be the people with a disability. And so I try to remind myself of that. Like it's it's not a personal issue that I have. It's a societal issue and it's their job to serve me because they did not build a society for me. I'm trying to place blame instead of on myself, which I think is really hard to do as a young person, easier to do as an adult on, you know, systems in our society that perpetuate um, stable culture. So there's such a yeah. value on people who like speak well and read well and yeah. Uh, or do we're all speaking well right speaking. now though so it's we're yeah but just like small things like someone will be like someone was off saying they'd be like oh that person like had a bunch of mistakes in that like email so why would i respond or just like seeing that as a value of like who can read is like the person who is valuable or someone who can write well and Michelle, if, you'll, if, if you'll feel comfortable i want you to tell your story about your thank you notes Oh, yeah. So, like, so this is a story of, like, I, so I can't read very well. I could read, but, like, not well. And, like, write, but I, my handwriting is awful. Um, I actually, it was something I was self-conscious of as a child, especially because that was a thing 
that kids were valued, especially girls, being a girl growing up, um, were valued on handwriting. So it was, oh, the boys all are bad at handwriting and they'd always hand me like the notes in class. But anyway, so when I graduated high school, I had to write all those thank you notes to everyone who like sent me like money or came to my party or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was so afraid because I couldn't handwrite those notes. And I typed them and I knew the social rule that you cannot type social thank you cards. They will get mad at you. So I legit, I typed them. I did more than any of my friends type, like writing their notes. They wrote like a script. I made every single one personal of how I knew them, what they gave me, mm-hmm. and like how I appreciated them. Every single one wasn't different. But I knew that they were going to judge me. These were family members and friends who knew I was dyslexic. So I actually made a note that I put additionally slid into the card that was like, because I typed them. I typed them, cut them out, and glued them to a special, I went above and beyond. Anyway, a special card. And I put a note in it about dyslexia. And I was like, before you judge me, remember I have dyslexia. And this is a more accessible version. Next time you see someone doing something different, such as typing a note, consider that that person might have different abilities and this is an access need. And I just put that in there. And I had multiple, and I was so afraid that they were going to judge me. And I had multiple, even family members, reach out to me and say, you know what? When I saw your thing was, like, typed, I judged you. Like, my immediate thought was, oh, wow, she doesn't appreciate me. And then I read your note, and it really made me reflect um, they didn't use the word ableism, but they were like, I reflected on how I judged disabled people. They didn't call themselves ableists. Um, yeah. And like having people tell me like, wow, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have even second guessed that I shouldn't have judged you. And I'm so glad that you put that note in it because now I'm going to think about that. So that's just like an example of like our society, we put value on reading. Yeah. I know we have one question left, but I'm seeing a lot of questions in the chat and I'm thinking that it's more valuable to answer the questions that people are here to ask. So um, I think I'm going to switch gears and we're going to go to the questions that are being asked live. So if you haven't put your questions in the Q&A, this is your time to do it. Um, But I'm going to start going through the questions that we have for our group here. Um, So first question. Did you all always want therapy or were there times when you when yourself wanted to ignore your challenges? Good question. I don't think I knew that I was, um, I don't think I even thought of that as a resource at the time. This was also, you know, back in the 2010s, therapy might have become might have started becoming more normalized but i think we have easily forgotten that therapy was pretty regularly stigmatized and it was thought to be for people that were quite mentally ill and like kind of judged um i i do know that like i remember the first time my mom asked me if i wanted therapy my sophomore year and i was just like oh like I didn't say yes to her, but then when I thought about it later, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I could benefit from that. You know, what's interesting is like in college experience, I remember looking at statistics. I don't remember what I was doing this for, some sort of research for grad school, I assume. But more people disclose mental health challenges than learning disabilities when you go to college. And it's the opposite in high school. Um, So it's just that I don't just. I don't know how you want to interpret that. 
but it's in- it's interesting. Yeah. That was something that was very weird for me as an early diagnosed person with anxiety. Like I knew what anxiety was at night. I was like, that's when I can't breathe um, because I can't do math. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we got to like 19 years old and so many people around me were suddenly using these terms. And like, I'd never actually, I considered my anxiety a learning disability. Like it was so a part of my story that the idea of like it not being alert, like it just, it blew my mind when it started becoming acceptable, but it wasn't acceptable to be dyslexic. So yeah, like the LD kids used to be the cool, like the cool kids. We weren't actually cool. Um, we had our little disability group. I think we're cool. Well, we are cool. I'm saying perceived by others. We weren't cool. <laughs> True. I think all four of us are pretty cool. Um, and generally our community is pretty cool. But yeah. And then it, I just remember like sitting there dumbfounded that everyone that was suddenly having this disability that I was like, I've been here. <laughs> I wasn't treated, but I was there. Yeah. Really quick, I just want to add, I can't help but wonder if also LD people are less likely to make it to college and yeah. if, and if that true. impacts anything. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you know, and also I think mental health emerges, as we've all said, sometimes later. So that happens also. I think we um, also think of learning disabilities as something that impacts you like K-6 and mental health is something that yeah. impacts you in your 20s. Just like who we think of as experiencing that and it could be that it experienced in your 20s because like we're having this new acceptance of mental health issues and the people who tend to accept new ideas are like young adults but um it kind of seems like okay you dealt with that in k-12 and now you deal with your mental health um but it's always been there for all the years i saw this question in the chat earlier and i was wondering if i should just interject it because it's kind of a one-word answer and i think we'll all say yes but how often do you hear from educators, you are brilliant, but easy, or but something? There's always a but. Oh. Um, so I assume <laughs> we all, I've all experienced that. I'm going to audio describe that I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> Honestly. For those of you listening <laughs> later, there's a lot of visual cues going on right now. Weirdly, I wasn't described as lazy as a kid, but I was told, I was a little bit, but it was just like, you're so anxious, like. Something. So I, I think the, the people I've noticed in the disabled community, we, we take two approaches. And Stevie touched on this earlier. And, and even when I swing wildly from one to the other, we go either go, this is so hard, I'm going to give up. Because what is the point? Or yeah. this is so hard and I will kill myself making sure I can do it. And I really swung towards the anxiety side of like, I will have a panic attack and keep going. Yeah, it is so, black and white. Wild. It's very black and white. I don't thinking. know many LD people who handle um, struggling very well without going to one of those extremes at some point. Yeah, yeah I think finding something. the balance is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we're very much supported in finding that balance. Um, and I don't think either is healthy. Not at all. Yeah, I think you're, you're pushed to one end or the other. Um, that's really true. Okay, next question. Do any of you find that the more you talk about your own journeys, the more others say, yeah, that sounds like me and what I deal with? Yeah. People come yeah. out to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. actually people have seen my work and they're like, hey, I just came out with ADHD. Like, how do you solve this? Or, oh, I think I'm actually going to get diagnosed because what you have seems like what I have. Like, it's so common now, especially for women, you know, that 
aren't really being diagnosed until they're like right mid 20s even late 30s like it's wild so or people who are older who didn't get the benefit of you know i think anyone over 45 exactly it's, it's hard to get identified or the weird thing of I've had a lot of people I've been very out as dyslexic my whole life. And my entire life I have people have had peers come up to me and be like, I'm LD and no one knows. And I can't have anyone know, but I want you to know. And it's it's so interesting to me every time. Like it happens to me now. I'm very out as being a dyslexic dyslexia researcher. I will have people like DM me on Twitter. I love it when it happens. And they'll be like, Me too. And no one in my program knows. I'm like, you're literally researching dyslexia. Like, it's yeah. okay if you're not on that journey to come out. But I think yeah. that com- being out makes it, oh, people kind of like survey the scene. They're like, well, they're doing okay. So like, I yeah. can, you you show that the water's safe. Yeah. And Tusking sometimes waters, that does yeah. mean that you have to come up against the sharks first. But, yeah. I find, I, I feel like, oh, sorry. Oh, go for it. No, go. Oh, I find that um, for whatever reason, it bums me out. But outside of NCLD, um, I don't run into a lot of LD folks. I don't know. I don't know if what about my magnetism or whatever. Just I'm not around them enough. But I want more of that community just in my everyday to day life. Um, I guess my special interest is like learning studies, and I research learning studies for a job. So like comes up a lot. Like I'll be like, I say dyslexia. Will- I'll be like, oh, I have that, and I'm like, cool, me too. Uh, Stevie, in our area, okay, the DMV area. I don't know what it is. You know, I'm very rampant about it. And no one, I don't know. It's those long legal documents. They scare the LD people away. It's policy. Yeah. It's policy. It's DC. It's policy. Too much people. reading. I'm going to go to the next question because we got a lot. Um, so I'm trying to get through as many as possible. And I'm sorry to people if we don't get to every single question. Um, we're doing our best, but I can't promise. But we do have a chunk of time. So hopefully we'll get to all of them. Uh, Stevie and Misha. This is a long one. So I might misspeak as I'm reading here. Uh, as a parent, I've seen my daughter, who did well in high school, develop a high level of anxiety in college away from home, which led to depression. Her autistic nature, along with her personality of not sharing what's going on with her, uh, complicated the issue. It took a while for me as a neurotypical parent to understand that. It's unfortunate that I didn't understand well at the time. What do you suggest regarding how to support my 23-year-old daughter who is still suffering from anxiety and depression? Oof. First of all, as you, and, yeah, as you're thinking, I want you to give you guys a second to think about it. But um, I just want to recommend if if you can reach out to a therapist, even at CHC, um, we do um, support 23 year olds. So if if that's something, if you want a clinical um, answer yeah. to that, someone with a, a PhD or PsyD, um, I would suggest that. But go ahead. I think going into a bit what Natalie says, definitely a therapist, but also how open that person is to like sharing their daily experiences, um, I think is very crucial. And I think just establishing, I don't know, that relationship of genuinely, you know, checking in on her, you know, to see if like she's okay. And then maybe transitioning, I guess, into the conversation without um, pressuring that person would be I, ideal. But Sorry. No, were you done, Misha? No, yeah, I was done. I just didn't want the... <laughs> I didn't want applause. I, um, I'll quickly chime in. Um, I, I'm kind of seeing this from two lenses. One is that I feel like 
I found especially that leaving my parents' homes, I'm assuming the student is, yeah, they said the student's away, um, that the ADHD comes into overdrive, especially when you're first out of the structure of your parents' house and outside of the structure of like a school day where you go to the same singular building every day. Um, and it makes, it's, it's a lot more to manage. Um, and there is no college 101 course on how yeah. to navigate being a college student. Um, also, as the, I'm sure as a parent, you're attempting this, but I sometimes get frustrated with my parents when I'm like, when I feel like they're always asking me about work or my school or whatever. And I'm like, I really want to feel valued for other aspects of my self outside of being a student or outside of anything even achievement-based, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really being intentional and saying, you know, like, if you get a B or C's or if you even fail a class or two, it's okay. That happens. It's part of life. Because um, I don't feel like we share that messaging enough. And it's not, I get that a failure, I guess a failure in a class is not something to celebrate, but I don't know. If it saves your mental health, maybe it is. Yeah, I'm the the thing that keeps coming up for me is thinking about modeling. I think especially when someone is in their twenties, they're kind of done with listening to their parents. But I think if you model the behavior you want um, from your kid, I think that helps sometimes. Um, and just being a safe space for them to come to, rather than trying to solve all their problems. Um, or have the answer or trying to fix it, but trying to get them to get to the answer, which I think is really hard to yeah. do as a parent. You just want to fix and solve and, oh, I know what to do here, so just do it. Um, but teaching that skill of solving your own problems and just modeling the behavior in your own life, that would be my two cents. Um, all right, next question. Seems like the pressure to perform for grades was a precursor for anxiety for all of you. Do you feel that the use of pass-fail or master mastery grading systems would have helped that? I assume that you didn't get graded on your careers, hopefully, <laughs> and you experience a more supportive work environment. Interesting. I'm curious what you guys think of this. For me, it wasn't always about the grades. And that was, was the thing about the how they thing. were always the like, same. like, I graduated high school with like a 3.95 GPA. Like uh, grades were... Like, Damn. I did well in school Here's me. being LD. I'm just, like, saying. Like, so for me, it wasn't, it was, and that is the thing that still gets me upset today. Because I'll be anxious about a class. And they'll be like, it's okay, you're going to get an A. And I'm like, I know. Like, Duh. Like, I, I was going to get an A. That's but, not like, why you were anxious. Like, yeah. I was anxious about knowing the knowledge. Yep. And it was intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic motivation, which is different than some people's. Like, intrinsic is, like, your own desire to do yeah. well and then extrinsics like rewards because i knew myself i was gonna get an a i was gonna do what it took but the idea of like like i give the example of math class of them going on to that next slide and me not having the knowledge and then moving on without me and me being left behind mm -hmm. was the source of anxiety and that might not be for everyone stevie and misha might be different but i think i would still just have the same amount of anxiety just because my goal was i didn't want to be left behind um academically I didn't really care about the grades because I was going to get an A. And if I got a B, like I did get some Bs, it was like I knew I was going to do the best I could. Mm -hmm. 
No, same. Like even if, for example, a teacher, right, gave us like a cheat sheet for an exam and I knew what was going to be on it. It was just the fact that if she would like repeat, you know, the answer in the question, it sometimes just wouldn't register to me just because of how anxious I was to just do well. (laughs) It's that buildup, you know, that sometimes really gets you on exams. Well, and I'm thinking about actually doing well created anxiety for me because I thought, oh, they're going to take away my LD card because I'm doing well. Like They tried that on me. Oh, they retested me and then they found out I was reading a lot worse than they thought. (laughs) The audacity. No, it's really hard. Misha never got her official LD card from NCLD, right? They never. I don't think. Oh, you guys got pretty cards? No, I'm making a joke. (laughs) Are we card carrying members of NCLD? I do often wish there was an apparel line. Um, Card carrying LD community members. Yeah. So then those who aren't out, we just like flash a little card. I'm doing a little like flash up right now. I yeah. want to promoting future merge. Back to the point, meaning that the anxiety comes from, I don't think not feeling like you're going to achieve, but by people not believing or not perceiving your worth. Mm-hmm. I, th- I don't know. You know, that's the, that's it for me. Cause I, I was constantly worried that, oh, because I have A's, they're going to assume yeah. that I cheated or assume that. You know, there's no way that someone with this level of reading can do this, you know. I want to quickly speak to the career part of that question. I'll keep it brief, which was I have found navigating my career space that um, I really have to honor my neurodivergence and work with it, which for me, I have discovered means I struggle in an exclusively um, office space job, which is interesting because if you do the testing, you know, I'm, I'm able to read at a relatively high level for a dyslexic and I can seriously write decently, especially for someone with dysgraphia, but it drains me. And like, even though I can do it, it, it does not work for me in the long term. So I've had to shift my careers to be more, at least mixed with movement or like, mixing up the tasks so it's not all behind a desk and that requires a lot of self-awareness there's so many people who just kind of shove themselves through a work environment because they think that's where they need to be um and it's it's hard to be malleable um i could go for a very long time about learning disabilities in the work space um because it's i think it's it's a whole other volume of books separate from this conversation that could be written but aren't currently. Um, yeah. All right. I'm going to the next question. I swear I feel bad for all these questions down here. Um, thank you for sharing your journeys. Do you feel there's sufficient resources in college for those with learning differences? So many colleges say they do, but do they? We'll say for undergrad, I specifically looked at undergrads based on their disability offices. Um, and that was a major decision for me. A tip for those looking on where to go to college, I was told, is look where in the university, like the actual physical space, the display office is located. If it is a far off corner of campus, they do not care. Yeah. If it is a central building that is a large office, doesn't mean they care, but it's a clue. And also every college I toured, I asked them to connect me with a disabled, preferably learning disabled student 
So they'd send out an email to like their little listserv and be like, anonymously, like, oh, is there a student who'd be willing to meet with someone? And I'd take them to ice cream and it'd be like, so tell me the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Will these people fight for me? So I went to a school that um, was super supportive, luckily. um, But my grad school experience has been a bit different because I didn't choose it based on display office. Um, But I am in my own department and my advisor is very supportive. Um, But I'm not getting like, as much support now at a new university from the actual display office that I think I should be. I'm going to do a small plug here because we are about to publish a whole content piece, a collection about transitioning to college with mental health and learning challenges and a checklist of what to do. And one of the things that Rochelle said is on the list. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate the you know, I've heard stories from everything from like, oh, I just go to the disability service office. They give me a letter and they email my professors and that's all I have to do for the year for my accommodations all the way up to for every exam, every test, I have to get a piece of paper signed by the dean of students, signed by the professor and signed by me within two weeks of the exam. And then I have four different classes, which all have co-occurring exams. So not all colleges are made equal in their level of accessibility. And it's not just the documentation. It's like, I wanted to know that not only the, the university like center was going to give me easy accommodations, but that if I had an issue with a professor, they were going to go to bat for me. And I had that. Like, yep. there were certain times where I had an issue or I had friends who had issues. I never really had too many issues. And they were like, oh, yeah, that I told on them to this play office. And they like, boom, like <laughs> they met with that professor and they made sure. And this was at a big 10 school, like at a large state university. Next question. In my experience, higher academia and the medical field in particular seems geared towards having neurotypical and able-bodied doctors, professors, other professionals, etc., due to how competitive and unaccommodating higher education can be. Do many of you have neurodivergent or disabled peers? I think we kind of, I mean, unfortunately, address this a little bit and saying that we don't really hang out with other people like us other than I in feel like a good majority of my friends are all LD community settings. Okay, good. That's good, Rochelle. Me too. I have a lot of, sorry, I was going to say, I have a lot of undiagnosed yeah. people <laughs> that I know. I'll also add to um, maybe a symptom of our generation, but so many of our, so many of my friends are mentally ill to some degree. So that's not learning disabilities, but they fall under the umbrella of neurodivergence. Um, but a lot of them don't quite realize that. Um, yeah. Or even after I explain why they would, don't self-identify. But that's okay. That's their journey. And as someone going, like trying to be a professor, there's a surprisingly high amount of people with like ADHD and autism. Not usually always out, but you're just like, hmm, like just especially the number of ADHD people. Like I'm in an office of nine people and I think we counted that like four of us all have ADHD. So like we're, we're definitely there. Man. Yeah. As, as someone who was pre-med and then didn't, become a doctor um and then i'm also a daughter of lawyers i think that those two professions definitely neurodivergent people in them i think the barriers to those are actually the assessments prior so like the mcat and the lsat are extreme barriers um but if you get past those i think being a doctor and having adhd is probably a pretty good thing to have um because you can stay up late and work really hard and have a lot of things going on um but yeah, I think I think I don't really think about the job so much there. I think about the unnecessary barriers to those professions. Um, 
Yeah. Next question is, what, uh, what's one thing you wish you had that would have helped you as a child versus now? I think we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I wonder if there's anything else you know that we've talked for a while that you would add. I wish um, dictation was more introduced. Mm. And like, I got to be honest too, and maybe this is my own stubbornness, that even through college, I didn't use like text software that would read stuff to me, um, frankly, because it was gargly what the university could give me, whatever. But I have found, and maybe this is just me getting older as well, even though I'm like literally 27. But um, I find that my memory for oral information has gotten lesser so. And I think it's because my brain has been compensating yeah. to yeah. read. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think, I, I, I mean, I'm older than all of you, but it, I wish assistive technology had been introduced a little earlier in my life and that there was more variety. I felt like everybody was like, oh, everyone used Kurzweil. Everyone used this thing. And then, like, that was your choice. But there's a lot of variety within that and ways to use it. Um, and, you know, now I think Mac computers can read you and, and all of that. Um, and then dictation, obviously, when I was growing up, was only Dragon, naturally speaking. Um, that one, too. But now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, that was, uh, mm-hmm. I used to... Uh, dictate all my papers to my mother who would write handwrite them and then she Same. would dictate them to me to dictate to Dragon Naturally Speak. <laughs> There's like four so different levels of writing. <laughs> now your Mac um, can just do it. Uh, yeah, now it's so much easier. It's just funny thinking back to that. Um, so what advice would you have for our listeners as a first step toward advocating for themselves? So say someone's never advocated for themselves, what would be a good first step? I think it depends on the age. I think that something that was really great that my mother did growing up was she made sure starting in middle elementary school, every single IEP I had had a self-advocacy goal um, of how I was going to. Did you attend your IEP meetings? Yes. At what um, age? On a, uh, Probably starting like sixth grade. Okay. Um. Honestly, like overall, I my mother did so much right for with my learning displays, but like we had goals of like starting middle school if your child's younger, like I would go with my special education teacher to talk to the teacher and I would first describe it and then she would help me. And then by high school, I was just telling them and they'd send the, the email thing. But I think the big thing is just noticing, noticing things, being like, this is this is wrong or this is right and this is what I need. And starting to talk to people about how you wish the world would change and just like starting to maybe even complain to other people could start to be advocacy. There's been times I think I've like texted Stevie and Misha stuff and like our friends and like this thing happened and like, should I be upset about this? Like, I feel like that was wrong. So starting there of small of just like starting to realize that you have needs that aren't being met. And then if your child's younger, seeing if you can add those IEP goals to an IEP. Yeah. I feel like uh, high school experience, um, interpersonal conversations, so just with teachers, that usually worked. By the time I got to that point, that worked. God. At the institution, university level, frankly, sometimes good luck. If it's like a policy or something, I didn't figure it out. So, <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to ask one more question out of this list. I'm sorry to those of you who I didn't get to your question, um, but I know we're three minutes away from the end of our time. And 
but I think this is a good question to end on. Um, you all come across so strong, independent, and confident. Looking back on your experience, what do you think was the main contributor that paved the way for you to be the confident individuals that you are now? YouTube. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> Honestly, like Misha. Look, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. I know that was a little bit of a jump, but let me explain. So, like, what was it? Yeah, in the beginning of January, I believe of what, 2022. Yeah, I was like, I definitely need to get tested for ADHD or at least ASD. But where do I start? I looked up YouTube videos first of like, you know, different people's experiences, like, you know, commentators. And I'm like, okay, I definitely need to get checked. So if you're someone who's undiagnosed and like you don't know where to start, definitely YouTube it for other people's experiences. I mean, everyone has different experiences, but if you just feel like some of the stories like match up to yours, then yeah, don't hesitate to yeah, find your community. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's how I got tested. And Facebook online chat groups like Neuroclastic and like, you know, um, the autism spectrum disorder community uh, really helped. Yes. And TikTok. Yeah. I think it's hard. There's some like misinformation out there, obviously, but I feel like yeah. community is almost more important than the misinformation. Um, yeah. So, you know, you take it for, for the grain of salt. Um, anything else, yeah. Rochelle, Stevie? I think I just go back to what I said before of like, I'm just so glad I knew what I struggled with. Like, I remember I, I had some like lacking social skills as a kid, but like I get made fun of like a kid. I remember in second grade being like, oh, why can't you read? And I'd be like, I have dyslexia. Like, like I like it didn't occur well, to me that he was trying to bully me. Like, I just answered the question. I was like, I have a disability. Yeah. Like, I'd be like, are you going to disable? Are you going to bully me for a disability? Like, oh. and just like, I think that that was the biggest thing for me was just owning who I was and like I don't know I've always been that way like people have always they're like oh why is like your spelling so bad and I just feel like because I'm dyslexic or someone would laugh it happens all the time with like new friends they won't know and they'll be like ha ha you misspelled that and I'll be like I have a disability and they're like oops um but, like I think that was the biggest thing for me as a child of just knowing who I was and growing more oh, and more sure. as I got older into loving that part of myself but it was always something I I wore on my sleeve automatic shutdown automatically Rochelle I'm gonna use that yeah. now I was like, like are you gonna bully me I I still like I would they'd be like oh you're in the lowest reading group but it'd be like observation <laughs> how about you Stevie since you didn't even know about your disability for a while Nothing felt better in my life than when I started just like going up to my teachers and being like, look, I'm not rewriting this. I'm going to edit the expletive. I'm not rewriting this sentence five times because all my peers are doing that for the assignment. Like, it's not fair if I have to do five times the amount of work because I have five times the amount more of errors. I think I said it a little sweeter at the time, um, but it felt so good. And that allowed me and then I was respected it was amazing I think it was like receiving the respect on the basis of my disability that I think that's, yeah that's what helped for in me that I think the, to the, oh, go ahead go no no go I was gonna say in addition to not only knowing what my disability was but like being taught the language at a young age like I could at 10 tell you all about the ADA and the IDA or IDEA and the 504 act and like how those 
Like I could rattle them off. And like when teachers in high school would like not follow my IEP, oh, you, I would send emails with my linked IEP and a link to the 504 or ADA and a link to like I, IDEA. So my parents taught me the language legally of what my rights were. And that really mm. pushed the, between the, the like disability identity of like learning identity and like knowing my rights, like I was going to end up in advocacy because my friends would happen. I'd like pull up the like IDEA website. I'd be like, least restrictive environment. Here you go. This section. So if you can teach your yeah. kids like at a developmental appropriate level, like disability law. Yeah, I think so knowledge cool. is power. I don't think it even needs to be around disability law or anything like that. But knowing yourself, the more you know about the self, yourself, the less you're scared about it. Because if someone does confront you or make you feel uncomfortable, then you know how to respond because you know who you are. Um, I think if you keep things away from kids, then then they get caught in an uncomfortable situation and they don't know how to how to react. So I think that's really true. Um, all right. Well, I think this is the end of our time. Thank you all, Misha and Rochelle, Stevie, and all the awesome questions. We've had such great engagement um, in the chat. I'm seeing... Normal is just a cycle on the washing machine t-shirt comment, which I'm loving. Um, so it's just been really great to listen to everybody's, um, you know, ideas and obviously seeing this in chat. I'm just going to share some resources at the end here um, from CHC and also NCLD, um, just in case anyone is interested in it. If you like this podcast episode and you want to hear more episodes like this, you can go um Sign up for our virtual village, um, which is basically a weekly email where you get all new content from CHC uh, and any new and upcoming events. Most of these are virtual. So if you're not in the California area, you can access most of this content. Um, and then lastly, if you're able to donate, uh, we really appreciate it because the free events are due to generous donors that um, contribute to CHC. So if you're able to donate, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, if you can type embrace in the comment will then know that this is a due to this particular podcast uh, episode. I'm going to leave the QR codes up here for a second. Um, but if you also want to just go to chconline.org backslash virtual dash village, you can do that too, if that's easier. Um, and then here are some last resources. So if you're interested in the podcast, there's that link. Um, go to our website backslash podcast. If you're interested in SLC, if you're a high school student, college student, adult with a learning disability and want some support, you can go to CHD online backslash um, SLC. Um, and then lastly, if you're looking for therapy and you're a young adult, we also have therapy programs um, available if you go to our clinical services department and then go to young adult um, therapy. And then lastly, NCLD, if you want to learn more about their programs and their advocacy work and the Young Adult Leadership Council, go to ncld.org. Thank you all for coming. Visit us online at podcast.chconline.org. Make sure to subscribe to Voices of Compassion so you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review. Have a question? Send us an email or voice memo at podcasts at chconline.org. We're here for you when you need us.